Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. I want to bring in our guest now. I'm really pleased to say joining us here in New York with a distinguished career in both public service and the private sector. Our guest is Robert Hormatz, the vice chairman of Kissinger Associates. Bob, it's great to have you with us. And I was just flicking through what is a fantastic career in public service. Um, You helped manage the Nixon administration's opening of diplomatic relations with China's communist government. Um, As you know, Typically, these are such orchestrated events when two leaders meet each other with predetermined deliverables. Do we have any of that with this? Well, they're not predetermined at this point, but I think that Trump has made a number of statements which have been divisive in terms of U.S. relations with Europe and U.S. relations with uh, our allies, in particular in NATO. But he also has an opportunity, as other heads of state have had in the past, other American presidents have had in the past, to really exercise leadership at the summit. I wish the president well. I hope he succeeds. To succeed, I think, is very important, and other presidents have understood this as well, to take a strong leadership role, particularly in standing up to Uh, Russia uh, or the past Soviet leaders. And that is to really exercise leadership and say, we need you to stop imposing your will and your pressure and your disruptive measures on uh, the Ukraine. Uh, We need you to work with us in Syria to stop the continued movement east in particular and southwest in particular of the uh, Syrian regime. We need you to work together to strengthen uh, the ties that we could have between us. So he could make a leadership statement by making progress on cooperation, constructive cooperation on yeah. Syria, constructive cooperation on Ukraine and, uh, on, and many other areas as well, and back off on his meddling in the U.S. If the president were to take a leadership role, he could really exercise a lot of influence in this summit, strengthen our alliances, strengthen our relations with the EU. So I wish him well. It's a great opportunity for him yeah. if he wishes to take that leadership w- role, as Reagan and Nixon and other presidents have done before him. I would like to pick up on that word success, though, Bob. Um, how do you define success at a summit when there is no predefined agenda? Well, that's, of course, one of the questions. Uh, There's no defined agenda, but it doesn't mean you can't make progress on these issues. One would be to have an agreement whereby the Russians would stop the Syrian regime from moving eastward to the eastern side of the Euphrates. America has troops there. We need to keep those troops there until there's stability and not allow the Syrian regime to just go in. That will Mm. simply strengthen the Russians and the Iranians. Also, on the question of Ukraine to get uh, some arrangement to maintain the ceasefire that was once again reinforced or agreed uh, in July, but has now begun to deteriorate a little bit. That would be a success. And some degree of, of progress or at least pressure on Putin to stop 
interfering in uh, American politics. We've already had these indictments. Those could be a point of strength for the president if he takes them seriously and says, we have the evidence. We probably have more evidence that we haven't released yet. And we're going to do that if, if we'll release it if we have to. That's a big problem for you. Russia needs closer economic cooperation with the U.S. because the economy is not doing very well. So if you do these kinds of things, Putin, we will do something to be helpful to you economically. But we need evidence that you're cooperating Syria, Ukraine, and backing off uh, interference in the U.S. Tough order, but areas where presidential leadership could be uh, a very positive thing. So I wish him well if he takes these kinds of positions. I hope he does. Uh, Ambassador Hormatz, um, I think of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo as a set piece of Cold War architecture. I'm standing in one right now, the acclaimed Hotel Vacuna, built in 1952. And folks, if you ever want to see the ground zero of Swedish and Scandinavian design, Bob, I, I assume you stayed in this hotel yes, on various I summer have. trips. Is, is Well, this hotel where I'm standing in brings back the nostalgia that President Trump always seeks for. Are we wrong in our nostalgia for another time in our fading memory of the Cold War and the tensions between Russia and America? Well, I think we should bear in mind that during the Cold War, we were able, in fact, to work with uh, then Soviet Union leaders to deal with some issues. And one issue that he can deal with, and you go back to the Cold War, the so-called New START agreement, which is to continue to reduce nuclear capabilities on both sides. That's something that we we did to a degree during the Cold War with START 1. The other two starts didn't work so well. But now we have a, a, a new start. We could reinforce that. So we shouldn't, we, we, do, we should not yearn for another Cold War. We're fortunately out of that period, which was very dangerous, but we don't want a new Cold War. And therefore, I think it is important to bear in mind the lessons of the past and figure out ways of working now with Putin if he's willing to do it. But the only way to do it is to be very strong and resist his pressures in the areas that I mentioned. He understands strength. And if he sees openings for dividing the U.S. from its allies, the U.S. from the EU, fragmenting Europe, he will take advantage of them. So the strength that President Trump demonstrates is going to determine whether we're able to work with the Russians successfully or not. And I hope he does show that strength because I want him to succeed. I don't want us to go back to another Cold War. Well, Bob, let's pick up on that point that you've just made. Um, If President Putin sees an opening to divide the rest of Europe um, from the United States. Is that opening there at this summit? Well, if you look at what the president has said about uh, going it alone and his criticism of the EU and some of his criticisms of, of NATO, Trump uh, may be inadvertently uh, perhaps signaling Putin that he can divide the West, that he can divide the US from Europe. So therefore, I think that it's important that uh Putin be disabused of the notion that whatever Trump has said in the past, that he can continue to pursue his divisive uh, ways and divide the U.S. from its friends and allies, which are critical to our security and to theirs. Bob Hormatz, it's great to catch up with you. We really, really appreciate your time here on Bloomberg Surveillance, the vice chairman of Kissinger Associates with Tom Keane in Helsinki and myself, Jonathan Farrow in New York City.
John Farrow and I are now advantaged to have with us Charlie Solani's Pasternak, who is, well, not a military brat, but he grew up traveling the world as a banker brat. His father was a, a leading banker, and he lived here, he lived there, and he ended up in Middletown, Connecticut, at Wesleyan University. For a guy from Finland, what was the first day on the perfect, gorgeous liberal arts campus of, of Wesleyan University, one of the toughest admits in America? Uh, well, I, I exactly. I won the liberal arts education because I wasn't sure I, what I was going to want to be. Um, it's a little unusual in Finland where you choose your, yeah. to be a doctor or a lawyer or whatever you're going to do. Um, I loved it. I mean, you know, you get to work every day with brilliant people, learn, read, and then it's your job to see what you get out of it. <clears throat> right. The, the theme that you studied at Wesleyan and at Helsinki and your work with the Finnish Institute of International Affairs is to pick up and look forward from the Westphalian system over to a clash of civilizations. Maybe we drag in Fareed Zakaria in a post-American or a post-Finland world, and we stagger to whatever we're staggering to. Brief Mr. Putin and Mr. Trump. What are we staggering to right now in international relations that affects all of us? Well, well, this is just it. If, I, if I'm look, looking at it from uh, Helsinki right now, it is uh, unique that the U.S., and Russian leaders both seem hell-bent, if I may use the expression, to weaken and divide Hold Europe. Hold on. Bowden, can we say hell-bent on radio? Is that okay? Yeah, okay. I got the big thumb up. All Continue. Right. But, but both, <clears throat> so U.S. and Russian leaders want to divide and break up Europe, and within it maybe even the EU. That is truly unique, because if you're looking at it from, from across the Atlantic in the U.S., U.S. global power has been built on and is dependent on these global alliances and friendships. The distinction to me is, as you correctly state, from the Atlantic, it is a coalesced Europe wrapped around the symbols of Germany, France, maybe the United Kingdom. <coughs> Europe, which is a larger economy than the United States, is the Finlands, the Lithuanias, etc., of Europe. How much do we get wrong the parts and the sums of Europe it's not just Angela Merkel and what she says next. Well, it's, it's correct, and, and it's a small one. that kind of desperately need something bigger to belong to, like the EU, because uh, Finland by itself uh, doesn't necessarily do well in the geopolitical game uh, globally. Um, I, I guess if you say is it's where you can have innovation, you can you can have small business ideas, and then you go to bigger countries to get the capital. You go to uh, California or somewhere else to get capital for, for ideas on clean tech, environmental stuff, so on. Can Finland become and Helsinki become their version of California? Everyone tosses around the word innovation. I met with Tyler Brulee of Monaco, who's called this the most livable city in the world. A huge buzz here. Finnair had a perfect flight up here from London. Can a California ethos come to Finland that informs Europe about entrepreneurship? I think it can. Um, there is a sense of wanting to make things better. Um, it's uh, one of my colleagues said, you know, Finns have this cross to bear, which is to improve things continuously. And that's maybe why Helsinki is such a livable city. Something may be good, but let's improve it a little bit. And that, I think, is one kind of startup mentality. Someone's already doing this, but let's do it a little better. I'm thunderstruck coming here as the ugly American, 54 miles to Estonia, 
242 miles to uh, St. Petersburg in my naivete of that statue by the Helsinki Cathedral of Tsar Alexander. Americans were clueless about this linkage of Finland to Russia. What is it in 2018? Well, we're neighbors, and as, as through history and, and, and through the world, neighbors have to trade. You have to somehow communicate, understand what, is the, what are the other people thinking about. Uh, and that's not how I think most Finns view it. Trade, send as many Finnish hockey players, if they don't go to the NHL, go to the KHL, do all of this stuff, but then prepare if the day comes when, when arms have to be picked up. So it's not necessarily an antagonistic one, but it is certainly a, a wary one. Within the trade is the issue clearly of the moment across all of these populist debates, which is migration. How has migration touched Finland? Well, broadly speaking, as we'll see, not a great deal. But of course, Finland and many of the historical innovations were brought by migrants here. Uh, they had something they wanted to do, and they thought Finland was a good place to do that. Uh, now, about three years ago, we did have something very unhappy happen, which is Russia quite purposefully released a set of migrants or forced them to cross the border here, uh, kind of as a proof of concept, saying, hey, we can release people across the border, and uh, depending on what you do, we have millions more to go. Um, so that was a less pleasant surprise, shall we say. <laughs> when President Trump not argues or talks, but jawbones, if you will, about American manpower in Europe, that's troops that maybe not stationed in Estonia, but they train in Estonia with British forces and, and such. Explain why that presence is important in this special relationship with Russia. Why do we need American troops training in Eastern Europe? Well, again, because it almost doesn't matter if anyone in Washington doesn't know about Estonia or Tartu or Tallinn or Helsinki. It's the U.S. global military and trade power is dependent on these alliance networks. And if the U.S. lets go of one of them, shows it will not defend one ally, then across the world, Japan, China, everyone else is following. From Finland's perspective, which is doing deep, deep cooperation with the U.S., deeper than I think most Finns even realize, it's also yeah. important uh, because we don't belong to NATO. So you want to have uh, potential partners um, everywhere, and the U.S. Is, is an obvious one. You mentioned hockey before. I've got one final question. Patrick Lane is wonderful. The Finnish conversation, uh, contribution to the National Hockey League, to North American hockey, is, is extraordinary. But there's a gentleman that played for the Anaheim Ducks. I don't know why he had to retire. Timo Solani was at the peak of his game, it seemed, when he retired. Boy, did he go out with grace. He, he he did go out well, and, and uh, great to see him. In fact, uh, years ago, the first interview I ever did was with Tiemo Selene after his was rookie it? season. Uh, so, yeah, great to see him, and what a, what a great well, career. The best part of this is our discussion of international relations, but frankly, the best part of this is not talking the World Cup, as I've been doing for six weeks. Uh, Charlie, thank you so much. Charlie Solanus, a pastor is with the Finnish uh, International Affairs. John Farrell, that was one of those hockey talk, John. How did you squeeze in ice hockey? I, I got ice hockey. It's like 85 degrees here, and I got ice hockey into it in I, Finland. I, I honestly don't know what you're up to this morning. Without question, within the tensions of the Soviet Union, 
of the past, the Russian Federation of the present, and the United States of America. This is the interview of the day. George Friedman, you know from Stratfor, and of course, his work with geopolitical futures, but maybe there's not the George Friedman who at age seven wandered out of Hungary. Mr. Friedman joins us from Austin, Texas this morning. George, what was it like when your family fled Hungary? Do you remember that as a child? I remember very little of it. Uh, The Soviets had taken over the country. The borders were closed, uh, minefields everywhere. And my father was on a list to be arrested. So it was either get out or get out. And we went across the Danube uh, in a rubber boat with machine guns looking at us. Interesting time. Those are interesting times, and that is a reality from the past. Do we need to be informed about machine guns on the Danube now? And particularly, does the president need to have an understanding about about machine guns on the Danube now? Or is that a distant past? Well, the machine guns aren't on Danube. They're in the Carpathian Mountains, potentially. They're on the Polish border. Uh, But the Russians are not anywhere as strong as the Soviet Union was. And a great deal of what they do is bluff. Their economy is pretty close to a shambles. Their military is nothing compared to the American. Uh, There is, of course, a feeling of this super uh, intelligence service that hacked our elections. Well, they stole some emails, and they sent some Twitters and some Facebook stuff. But we need to keep this in perspective. Uh, The Russians have played their hands beautifully, making them appear on a global basis that they are a major power. But they're struggling. Should we put weight to the 12 officers that have been indicted? Do you agree with Mr. Mueller this is an important item? Or does Mr. uh, Mr. Trump have points that maybe it's overdone? Well, certainly, you know, the idea of indicting foreign intelligence officers now opens doors for American intelligence officers to be indicted in foreign countries, which, uh, you know, it'll be tit for tat. Uh, but more importantly, I'm really interested in why Mueller, knowing that a summit meeting was coming, chose that time to issue the indictments. Uh, he probably had a reason. He probably had a good reason why, in part of his uh, investigation, this had to be done now. But it really reshaped the meeting between the American and Russian presidents and uh, seems to have uh, pushed Putin a little bit off the wall. He made a tweet this morning that was extraordinary, where he said the declining relations between the United States and Russia was due to the stupidity of American foreign policy in the past. That is a stunning statement for the president to make. Uh, on walking into Putin. It certainly puts him in a bad position to negotiate. Well, George, that's right where I wanted to go. And, folks, this is why this conversation with Mr. Friedman is so important, and we'll have this out on our podcast, I hope, later uh, at, at Apple and at Spotify. And, George Friedman, the, the bottom line is, is Mr. Pompeo has to pick up the pieces. Now, there was a feature article, full disclosure, folks, I can't remember right now, the New York Times or the Washington Post today, about General Mattis running essentially a separate Pentagon European policy. Can our State Department run a separate policy from the president's rhetoric? Or is Mr. Pompeo tied uh, at the hip, linked at the hip with the president? I would put it this way. General Mattis can run a a separate policy because U.S. military forces are overwhelmingly powerful, and he can do that. Uh, The United States economically is overwhelmingly powerful, and these are the fundamental realities. 
now. How the administration organizes itself is an interesting question and an important question. But the most important thing to bear in mind is the relative power of the two countries. But it would seem very likely that General Mattis, who has really had control over all military political dimensions of foreign policy up to this point, is kind of running the shop himself, the president right. delegates. If you're just joining us with us, George Friedman, Geopolitical Futures. George, I want to go granular uh, now, and I want you to inform our global audience, and particularly our American audience, about this area of Syria that is a focal point of tension between uh, Russia, between their support of Syria, between Mr. Netanyahu and Israel, between Iran, and I guess with America as well. And this is the, the distance of Syria from the Israeli border and what each of these parties wants. What should America want about this most sensitive part of the Middle East? Well, put in a broader context, the Iranians have managed to take a great deal of control in Iraq. They are the dominant force in Lebanon. They have become a significant force in Yemen. And they're a, dominant, a very powerful force in Syria. What we've been seeing is uh, Iran kind of extending its power. Now, it's thin on the ground. It's not really powerful if it was challenged. But it's there. And the Israelis are looking at them very close to their border, knowing that they can fire missiles, knowing that they could carry out covert operations, uh, knowing that they can do all sorts of things. The Israelis want them back from the border. The Russians have agreed, sort of, that they would force them to go back from the border. But the question is, how far? Ten miles doesn't make any difference to a missile. The real question is here, the Iranians are now threatening Israeli national security. Netanyahu said yesterday that he and the president had a talk, and they're very close together. And this is likely to be the major issue. Uh, yeah. There are any substantial issues at this, at this summit. I, I did a TV uh, special, George, last week at Broadcast. Folks, look for it out on Bloomberg Digital with Ian Bremmer and Robert Kaplan. And, of course, we talked about Marco Polo's uh, world and Kaplan's new book, and the Eurasia, which I'm going to take from the Straits of Malacca all the way around to the Persian Gulf. Is there going to be a band of geography from Tehran to Beirut? I mean, is, is that a new geography Americans have to get used to? Not really. We don't have to get used to it. We just have to decide to handle it. How do Iran we is, well, Iran is domestically unstable. Uh, there was an uprising over the weekend of Shiites throughout yeah. Iraq against the pro-Iranian government. So we have to understand, one, they have their footprint down, so do the Russians. Two, underneath it all, they're not very strong. So what has happened is, as the U.S. has created a vacuum, it's been filled by second-grade powers. Uh, we look at all of this, we watch China's response to the American trade initiative, and it's kind of weak and very nervous. The United States has to recognize the most important thing, which I think Trump sometimes doesn't really deal with. We're really very strong as a nation. And the ones we're facing, like Russia, well, it's a third world power. It lives off of exported oil, and it can't control its price. Iran can spread yeah. if there's no one resisting it, uh, but it can easily be rolled back. And the Chinese have their own power. Yeah. So I regard this Eurasian thing as a coalition of the weak. They can get together. They can do these things, but... 
uh, in the end, once the United States becomes coherent in its policy, right. uh, there's no question who the big guys in the block is. Well, this sounds like a conversation to continue. George Friedman, just brilliant on this day of Helsinki and the summit. want to bring in uh, Chris Granville. He is the managing director for EMEA and global political research for T.S. Lombard. EMEA, of course, uh, Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, he joins us from London. Chris Granville, thanks very much for being with us. Um, you've, uh, you've said that you believe that the chances of Britain crashing out of the European Union without a deal are negligible. Why do you say that? Hi there. Well, it's a simple observation about parliamentary arithmetic. The, there is no majority in the House of Commons, the UK Parliament, that is, that would ever support uh, a disorderly crash-out style of uh, uh, UK Brexit. And on the contrary, there's a, a guaranteed majority that, uh, if the worst came to the worst, would stop that happening. So whatever uh, whatever else could happen, there'll be lots of political noise. There could be changes of leadership, changes of prime minister, even changes of government. Uh, but that will not happen. So uh, in our view, uh, the, uh, the volatility of uh, in the FX markets, so the, the pound sterling, perhaps in wider UK assets, is on the one hand inevitable because there will be even higher levels of political noise on the domestic UK scene than we've already been seeing in the coming months until March next year, which is the deadline for the Brexit process. But that noise will not lead to a, a true economic and financial shock. So there will be buying opportunities uh, along the way. That's that's how we look at it. Okay, but, but you make it sound as if Britain has complete control over the process whereby the European Union surely has a voice in how this works out. Good question, and uh, I should have added that uh, important detail. Uh, if the, uh, the UK Parliament uh, refuses to ratify whatever version of the withdrawal agreement, that is the, the treaty instrument by which the UK would leave the European Union, um, then um, the, the same UK Parliament that uh, refused to ratify that agreement uh, would then instruct the government uh, to, uh, to avoid a, a crash out uh, in March. And the obvious way to avoid it would be for the UK government to request an extension of the two-year deadline under the famous Article 50 of the European Union Treaty. That is a departing member state, a member state who wishes to depart, notifies the European Union of its wish, gets two years to prepare. Uh, and now, uh, as, you, as your question implies, any such request from the UK would need to be accepted by the other side, which is the other 27 remaining member states of the European Union. Uh, so uh, an important part of our argument is that in those extreme circumstances, we're talking about remote uh, scenarios here, and the mainstream is just a, a smooth Brexit in name only going into a standstill transition lasting uh, a couple of years. But in this remote scenario, then uh, the other member states would certainly agree to an extension because uh, a crash out of the UK in disorderly circumstances would be uh, for the EU to allow that to happen despite a UK request 
suggest that it should not happen yeah. uh, would be an act of self-harm, and they won't do that. Well, a theme that, that I, I'll be honest, folks, I didn't have until I got to Finland is that we have a very three-nation-centric view of Europe, Germany, France, United Kingdom, and you come to Finland and you really have in your face, folks, the periphery and the many other nations of Europe. Do they have a big voice in the Brexit EU debate? I mean, in Brussels, is it about waiting to see what Chancellor Merkel wants or Mr. Macron? Or does Finland actually have power within the Brexit debate? Well, in the in when it comes down to uh, dramatic and uh, extreme scenarios like the one I just mentioned, Tom, then yes, uh, because the unanimous assent of all member states would be necessary. So uh, even smaller countries like Finland, and Finland, by the way, is by no means the smallest member state. I mean, think of Cyprus or even Malta. Uh, but they would all have a voice, and uh, they would all have to be taken seriously, and their concerns, if they had any concerns they wished to air, would need to be listened to. But in the day-to-day um, negotiations and, and in the Brexit process, it's also the case that small, smaller countries uh, have important weight, uh, and in particularly the Republic of Ireland, by any standards, a small member state of the European Union, but one whose vital interests uh, are involved in the Brexit process. And the interests of the Republic of Ireland are being firmly defended by the central EU negotiators in Brussels, because uh, the EU will always want to show that it will stand up for its right. members, and uh, and this is certainly doing. The Netherlands is a, a, a slightly less extreme example, but uh, the Netherlands Cr- is, a, is a, again a smaller member Chris, state, we, which would be at risk of severe. We've got a Chris Granville. We've got to leave it there. EMEA Global Political Research Director for TS Lombard speaking from London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.